Hello, I'm Paul Leeworthy. Welcome to the Connecting Memories podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome indeed to the very first of the Connecting Memories podcasts. I'm Paul Leeworthy and I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest speaker and as such the inaugural speaker for this podcast series, Professor Edward Hollis of the Edinburgh College of Art in the University of Edinburgh. Thanks very much, Paul. In these podcasts, I'll be talking to leading academics about memory. Memory is a fashionable term these days, not least in academia, but the word is often used to mean very different things. As well as asking our guest speakers to share some of their latest research with us, I'll be asking them, what does memory mean in the context of their research? Whose memory do they study and how? I've taken the decision to launch this podcast series in response to the lockdown we're all currently in due to the coronavirus pandemic. I hope it will provide the Connecting Memories initiative and scholars already involved with it, as well as others interested in memory, with a space to come together and to stimulate each other's thinking about memory. Each episode will be made up of three parts. In the opening segment, I'll be asking my guest speaker to say a little bit about what memory means to them and in their research. In the second section, they will give a shortish talk or micro lecture presenting some of their latest research. And in the concluding part of the podcast, I'll be asking a couple of questions about their talk. So without further ado, I shall introduce today's speaker. Edward Hollis studied architecture at the University of Cambridge and the University of Edinburgh. He practiced as an architect for a number of years, first in Sri Lanka, in the practice of Geoffrey Bauer, and then in the UK. There, he was active in the practice of Richard Murphy, who is known particularly for his radical alterations to old buildings in and around Edinburgh. Edinburgh-based listeners may have seen that the practice is currently involved in the Future of Filmhouse project developing Festival Square. Edward Hollis began lecturing in interior architecture at Napier University, Edinburgh in 1999 before moving to the Edinburgh College of Art. He currently holds the personal chair for interior design and is the deputy dean of research for the College of the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences. As he describes it, Hollis's theoretical thinking and research relates to building stories and narrative structures connecting time, folktale and the built environment. As well as many articles and book chapters, Hollis has published three books on the basis of which he enjoys the rather rare status of being both an academic and a best-selling author. His first book, The Secret Lives of Buildings, a collection of folk stories about mythical buildings, was first published in 2009. His second, The Memory Palace, a book of lost interiors, appeared in 2013. And his third, How to Make a Home, was published for the School of Life in 2016. Thanks so much for agreeing to join me today and to share some of your memory-related research with us. So again, welcome, Professor Hollis. Thanks very much. That's great. An ongoing interest of the Connecting Memories Initiative, and as I've said, a focus of these podcasts, is distinguishing what different people mean by the term memory. So, Ed, uh, what does memory mean in the context of your research? Whose memory do you study and how? Thanks very much, Paul. Um, Yeah, so um, by way of explanation, um, I've come at this field or I'm coming at it um, from a background, firstly, in architecture, uh, being the design of buildings. And secondly, from the point of view of interior uh, design and architecture, which means the redesign of buildings and environments. And I guess the crucial thing to pick up there is the word re, uh, which is also what we attach to member uh, to, uh, to, to, to get to the, the idea of, of remembrance or, or memory. So I guess my, my pragmatic interest in memory is the uses of uh, memory in redesigning buildings, uh, in redesigning uh, environments. Uh, What part does that pastness play uh, in uh, uh, fabricating new presence? There's two particular things I'm gonna focus on in the the talk which which is coming. Um, And the first of those is then the remembrance of architecture or the memory of architecture as a discipline so by which I might mean the history of architecture. What do we mean uh, uh, when we say the history uh, of architecture, the history uh, of the built environment? Do we mean the creation? Or do, is it 
about memorializing the heroic works of, of great masters of the past? Is it about studying and understanding the way the built environment changes, um, which is perhaps a slightly less heroic, but maybe more interesting narrative? So that's one particular thought, um, is this idea uh, of how do we remember uh, a discipline uh, and what it does? The second one is maybe closer to home and certainly closer to home in terms of the interior, which is how do we use uh, the built environment to help us remember things? Um, and in particular, uh, I find it very interesting to imagine memory taking place over different scales of time. Uh, so one might uh, imagine memory taking place over a kind of historic scale of time. If we look at an ancient building, uh, we might be talking about memory to do with centuries, uh, for example. Um, at a, a much smaller uh, scale, if we look at a domestic interior, it might help us think about memory uh, in the span of an individual life, something we might measure in decades. But in the arrangement of objects on a table or in a kitchen cupboard, we're talking about operational memory, which might be much more instantaneous. It's like literally, what do I have to do now? And so what memory is at different scales uh, is something which is a conversation which can maybe happen in parallel with what actually the built environment is at different scales. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's really the, these thoughts, first of all, uh, about the idea that if the built environment is something which isn't invented and then fixed, uh, but is something which is always changing, how does it change? At what rates does it change? Uh, and given that the process of change is movement from one state to another state, uh, then how do we work in between those uh, uh, and what operations uh, or what role does memory play in those operations? Fantastic. Thanks so much, Ed, for that response. There's certainly a lot in there for us to think about. Uh, on the one hand, that frames what I already know of your work in a, in a really interesting way. Uh, and on the other, it whets the appetite uh, for the micro lecture that we're going to hear now. Uh, which you've entitled Secret Lives, Memory Palaces and Concrete Monstrosities. And at this point, I will say that there is a PDF file of images uh, accompanying this talk, which should be published alongside the podcast, uh, but will definitely be available to download on our website, connectingmemories.org. Hello, my name's Ed Hollis, and in this talk, I'm going to be telling some stories about buildings. Those are going to be stories about their secret lives, stories about buildings as memory palaces, and then include some tales of concrete monstrosities. What these stories have in common is an interest in the way that architecture relates to memory. The built environment relates to the way that we understand time. And I want to frame this talk uh, through three questions. How do we remember architecture? How do we use architecture to remember? And lastly, in a bad pun, how can we remember architecture? That is, how can we use memory to put it back together again? So I want to start by thinking about this question. How do we remember architecture? That is, how are histories of architecture understood and written? I studied uh, to be an architect. I wanted to be an architect as a teenager. Um, and what I'm going to do is tell you a little story uh, about a painting uh, which uh, I used to look at a lot uh, when I was a teenager dreaming of being an architect. It was painted by Thomas Cole in 1838 and it's called The Architect's Dream. Once upon a time, an architect had a dream. The curtain of his bourgeois parlour was rent, and he found himself reclining on top of a colossal column overlooking a great port. On a nearby hill, the spire of a Gothic cathedral rose above pointed cypresses in a dark wood. On the other side of the river, a Corinthian rotunda and the brick arches of a Roman aqueduct were bathed in golden light. The aqueduct had been built on top of a Grecian colonnade, in front of which a procession led from the waterside to an elaborate ionic shrine. 
Further away, the form of a Doric temple crouched beneath an Egyptian palace, and behind them all, veiled in haze and a wisp of cloud, was the Great Pyramid. It was a moment of absolute stillness. A perspective in time had become a perspective in space, as the past receded in an orderly fashion, style by style from the parlour curtain of the present, all the way back to the horizon of antiquity. The Dark Ages partially obscured classical splendour. Roman magnificence was built on the foundation of Grecian reason. The glory that was Greece lay in the shadow of the Ur architecture of Egypt. The array of buildings formed an architectural canon, each example dispensing inspiration, advice and warning to the architect from the golden treasury of history. All the great buildings of the past had been resurrected in a monumental day of rapture. Everything had been made new, and neither weather, nor war, nor wandering taste had scarred the scene. Everything was fixed, just as it had been intended to be. Each building was a masterpiece, a work of art, a piece of frozen music, unspoiled by compromise, error, or disappointment. There was nothing that could be added or taken away except for the worse. Each building was beautiful, its form and function held in perfect balance. The scene was what architecture was and is and should be. But just before he awoke, the architect realised that he was dreaming, and he recalled the words of Prospero, renouncing his conjured dominion at the end of the tempest. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Because, of course, while I had a dream of becoming a famous architect who would build great monuments that would last forever, the reality never turned out that way. What architects actually spend most of their lives doing isn't building new and perfect monuments that last forever and go down uh, looking as lovely as they do in photographs, in picture books and history books, uh, but instead uh, they design buildings that change, that fall into ruination, that are converted from one use to another and allowed to fall derelict. The world does not look like the architect's dream. How then could we remember what actually happened in architecture? The history of architecture has traditionally been written as a kind of canonical series of perfect masterpieces. What happened if we tried to produce or to consider a different canon that reflected the reality of the built environment around us? This is a problem that I've been considering throughout my career in a number of different forms. Uh, in as we'll see, working with historic buildings and trying to understand the ways in which they change over time, uh, and uh, in particular uh, through the medium of writing uh, and storytelling. Where I want to begin is with that, uh, is with the idea of storytelling, and to try to pull apart uh, a little more closely ways in which we use architecture to remember. On the one hand, buildings are things which last for a very long time. They're the largest and the most long-lived of the artefacts that human beings make. On the other, uh, they are protean. Uh, they're always changing. Uh, they are always slipping out of our grasp. How does this paradoxical nature that they possess model our own memory? Uh, and how, in some senses, do we use buildings uh, to remember uh, the ways in which we remember. I've examined this problem through two books of stories. The first of them is entitled The Secret Lives of Buildings, which was published by Portobello Books in 2009. Then secondly, The Memory Palace, a book of lost interiors, published by Portobello again in 2013. What I'm going to do is read you two stories uh, from The Memory Palace, um, and to use them to think about the different ways in which memory and the built environment are used to speak to one another.
The first story I want to tell you is entitled Porphyrogenitus. Once upon a time, long before your grandmother was born, an old woman sat down in a room to tell her story. She decided to begin at the very beginning. I have been conversant with dangers ever since my birth, she wrote, and fortune has certainly not been kind to me. Right from the start, it hadn't been easy. Her father had been away at war when the labour pains began, but her mother made the sign of the cross upon her belly and told the child to be still until he returned. How do you know whether he will come within a month? The midwife scolded her, and how will you be able to bear the pains for so long? But the child waited until her father was home before emerging, howling and purple from the womb. She had always been conversant with danger, she thought, and then she stopped and remembered. Unless you were to count it a smile of kind fortune, allowing me to be born in the purple room. Few of us can remember the room in which we were born, but she did, with uncanny accuracy. It was shaped, she wrote, as a complete square from its base to the spring of the roof, which ended in a pyramid. It looked out upon the sea and the harbour, where the stone oxen and the lions stand. She'd only been in it for a moment. Her father placed a diadem upon her tiny head and picked her up and took her to the door, where he showed her to the people waiting outside. For Anna Comnina was no ordinary child, she was porphyrogenitor. That is to say, she had been born in the purple room. It still embittered her, as she sat confined in her cell. Things could have been so different had the promise of that room been fulfilled. For the room was a room, nothing more, but it granted all the porphyrogenitoi and porphyrogenitai that were born in it a special privilege, for it was they and only they, that were entitled to the titles of Caesar, Augustus, and to wear the diadem of the emperors of Rome. She only remembered it because she had forfeited the right to inhabit it. Anna might have been porphyrogenitor, but she never became the empress she had hoped to be. Although her mother supported her claim as the firstborn, although she married a Caesar, her younger brother John slipped the ring from his dying father's finger and claimed the imperial crown for himself, and of course, since he was a man, everyone let it happen. Anna, outraged, tried to murder him, and when she failed, she was exiled to a nunnery to repent at leisure. Fortune has certainly not been kind to me, she remembered from her cell, unless you were to count it a smile of kind fortune, allowing me to be born into the purple room, and she brought it to mind again. The floor of this room was paved with marble, and the walls were panelled with it, and this marble is, roughly speaking, purple all over, except for spots like white sand sprinkled over it. Porphyry, the stone was called, and it was a rare and precious gem. The icons of the ancient pharaohs were carved in porphyry, and so were the tombs of the emperors of Rome, and so was the room in which they were born. Porphyry came from a mountain in the upper reaches of the Nile. It had been on the southern marches of the empire once upon a time, but that was centuries ago by the time that Anna Comnena described the room. And so the room, like the empire itself, was centuries old. Anna was porphyrogenitor, and so was Constine porphyrogenitus two centuries before her. The first porphyrogenitus had been the Emperor Leo, who had been born 250 years before that, and so the room must have been older than he was. Anna Comnina remembered the room in which she had begun, but she could only guess at its own beginning, for it had been there so long that no one could remember when or how it had been born, other than from a scrap of a story. Earlier emperors had it carried away from Rome, she wrote. That was all. For while Anna and Constantine and Leo and all the rest of them had been born into the purple and were Caesars and Augusti and emperors of Rome, they had never been there and would never go. They lived in Constantinople, the city that had supplanted Rome as the capital of the empire in the 4th century AD.
The poor Phrygenitoi might have been born in the purple, but they were emperors, emperors of an ersatz diminished imperium, whose provinces had been lost to barbarians, whose ceremonies had fallen into desuetude, and whose authority was borrowed from somewhere else. Even the purple room at its heart had been cobbled together from fragments of some other one. Long ago, the legend ran, sheets of porphyry had been prized from walls in ancient Rome, carried across the sea, and re-erected in a new room, in a new palace, in a new Rome. It wasn't the rarity of porphyry that lent the purple room its imperial promise, and it wasn't that it was hidden in the heart of the palace, and it wasn't just the resonance of the colour purple. Anacomnina had no idea whether it had come from Rome or not, but she hoped that it had. The purple room was a memory, a relic, of another faraway place that represented to the Romans of Constantinople where they had begun and who therefore they were. It reminded Anacomnina of who she had been at least, as she sat in her cell, deprived of her purple finery, meditating on the wrecked promise of her birth. And as she wrote, she imagined that ruined room in a ruined palace in a ruined Rome, from which, once upon a time, her own beginnings had begun. The story of the Purple Room in Constantinople is an example, I hope, of the ways in which buildings and spaces can act uh, to trigger and provoke and also, uh, in a sense, to challenge memory. On the one hand, this is an example of a thing which has lasted an enormously long time and as such as an idea or represents an idea uh, of permanence, stability uh, and memory. On the other, of course, that very longevity is its own undoing. Uh, this is a building which has appeared, uh, in a sense, out of a history that is so old and so long uh, that nobody can really guess at its origins. All they can do is tell stories about it. And what I think is particularly fascinating is quite how many buildings around us occupy that same space. How many of us know who designed the houses we live in, or who they were designed for, or how people lived in them when they were first constructed? If there's a literary model for this, it might relate to something like the folk tale. If one imagines the different iterations of the story, for example, of Little Red Riding Hood, from the Brothers Grimm forwards and from the Brothers Grimm backwards in time, we might discover uh, a story which on the one hand uh, is kept alive by a constant retelling, uh, which uh, becomes uh, a connection uh, back to the past. On the other, of course, the price of that retelling is always and every time alteration. There is no such thing as the perfect retelling of the folktale only a retelling in a particular time and a particular space. And I want to suggest to you that every iteration of every historic or ancient or even new building that we see is in some senses a retelling of something. And it's a retelling that's happened so many times that very often we might have no idea about the original. That idea of the building as the folk tale told and retold underpinned my first book, The Secret Lives of Buildings. The second, uh, the memory palace, tried to use the, in particular, the domestic uh, interior to talk about a very different model. And now I'm going to read you a small excerpt from that about a very different sort of room to the Purple Room of Constantinople. The end is something that's there, unspoken, in my grandmother's living room. Isn't it exhausting for you, living here, at home on your own, I ask her? and her eye flickers with irritation. She knows what I'm thinking. We've discussed it before. The home. There's even one she likes. All her friends have been there. There would be people to talk to, and as much bridge as she could play. There would be no cooking and cleaning and mending to worry about and no stairs to deal with. But she won't go. Living here is my job, she retorts, and doing it keeps me going. She remarks on her friend Naomi, who's safely installed at the home. She's got nothing to do, you know. She just sits looking out of the window. 
Granny would rather be busy and tired than inactive and bored, and busy she keeps despite her relative immobility. From her armchair she joins battle with telephonists, plumbers, the neighbours and the council. The objectives of her campaigns being the potholes in the road, the overgrown hedge next door, the leak in the roof and the next NADFAS meeting. Living at home isn't a state, for her it's an activity. Granny was brought up to believe that entertaining was her profession, and she's still a pro. Once a month or so, she likes to invite friends round for lunch and bridge. Preparations begin a week in advance when she must remember to ask someone else to take her to the supermarket, where she must remember to buy exactly what she needs. She will not be able to nip out back there again before her guests arrive. Cooking a meal takes about three hours, and every move back to the kitchen to fetch a new course will take several minutes. As soon as her friends leave, Granny retires to bed. She won't wash up until the next day. But it's during those lunch parties that the clutter of Granny's sitting room begins to make sense. The numerous little tables that litter the room become plinths for bowls of snacks. The groupings of chairs and sofas opportunities for conversation. The polished mahogany table and the matching chairs the theatre for a long and complicated meal. Once the guests depart, the room reverts to its dormant state, a stage without actors, in the midst of which my grandmother enthrones herself with the remote. Those lunches have been going on for years. They form short scenes from a long play, and the props have been around for as long as I can remember. Her current house is only one among many stages on which my grandmother has played out her life, and upon which those props have been arranged. Granny comes alive as she talks about those vanished rooms, and so does the interior that she's sitting in. She gestures at it as she speaks, pointing her ringed fingers at things I have known all my life. I've never met most of the people she's talking about, but I feel like I know them. At least, I know what Granny chooses to recall about them. In her sitting room, gesturing at the possessions she has arranged around her, Granny conjures up a jumble of the 20th century I can never quite unravel and never completely believe. A glamorous montage of seaplanes and golf, country house clearances, gin and a silver screen. The room, its contents and the stories she tells about them are things my grandmother has spent a lifetime arranging and rearranging in order to tell an interesting story. As I sit and listen, I imagine Granny as a little girl. She is sitting on the window seat in the living room, picking at the pink and white toile de jouis as her own grandmother talks and her companions sit and listen, and the men smoke their cigarettes in the green billiard room next door. Granny Eve is conjuring pasts of her own from the very same objects I can see now. Then I imagine it happening again with some of the same things 80 years before as Granny Eve sits in another room and listens to her own grandmother. I've no idea where that room was, or how it was arranged, or even who she was. Perhaps the house that contained that room has been demolished. I will never know who the first person was to sit on the chair I'm sitting in, or to drink from the glass I'm holding in my hand. Granny's sitting room is a stage in a relay between objects, buildings, furnishings, that stretches back ultimately over centuries. It's part of a chain so knotted and so long that I have no idea where it began. I only know that I too, as I sit and watch my grandmother conjure, am a link in it. No wonder Granny won't go to the home. She knows it won't be like that there. Naomi's lost her mind, she remarks. She's got nothing left to think about, you see, and nothing left for her memory to cling on to either. My grandmother's house is hardly palatial, but to my grandmother, its crowded sitting room is arranged, just as her memories are arranged. It is a treasury of her own constant and repeated creation, a museum of her own life and her fast disappearing way of life. One day, it is happening as I write, it will become her legacy. And so in the memory palace, the memory palace uh, to which the title refers is on the one hand Francis Yates's Memory Palace, the Memory Palace of the Orators, 
uh, of ancient Rome and so on, and it's also my own grandmother's sitting room. The thesis being uh, that in, in, in the kind of famous model of the memory palace, we, we invent an imaginary room in our minds and fill it with imaginary objects. And when we need to speak, when we need to speak by heart, as the ancient orators used to have to do, then we take an imaginary walk around that imaginary room, sitting on the imaginary chairs or looking at the imaginary objects arranged in the niches around it. And those sequence, that sequence of movement around a room is what reminds us what to talk about. And what I want to test uh, and uh, examine in the Memory Palace is how actually the design of real interiors, not imaginary ones at all, but real rooms, does performs exactly the same task for us. Take people's rooms away from them and you remove things that their memories cling on to. And so whether it's at the enormous historical scale of the Purple Room in Constantinople or the very intimate personal scale of a domestic living room in suburban London, uh, we find intimate connections between memory and building. I want to finish the talk uh, by thinking uh, about turning the question round. How do we, how do we or can we use memory to put buildings back together again? In one sense, I've described a, the, the built environment as a place of entropy, a place of permanent change and decay. How can we use that process uh, to actually, uh, uh, in a sense, create new environments. And I'm going to tell two stories. The first of them is basically Sleeping Beauty. I want you to imagine a beautiful building, an award-winning building. This is Gillespie Kidden Coyer's St. Peter's Seminary in Cardross near Glasgow, uh, which opened in the late 1960s, won all sorts of awards uh, and so on, seen as one of the best modern buildings in Scotland. And here it is in 2010 when I visited uh, the building and it had been abandoned for about 25 years. It's become one of those places that is a kind of cult uh, of dereliction. Uh, people go there to paint graffiti, people go there to explore it, uh, to engage with this extraordinary modern ruin. Uh, but of course that is a state uh, which can only ever be a temporary one because ruination is a process rather than a product. There is nothing uh, permanent uh, about a ruin. And so over the last decade uh, I have spent time working with Hayden Lorimer, uh, a human geographer uh, and NVA, an arts organisation in Glasgow, uh, to think about ways that we could provoke people into reoccupying this dangerous, abandoned and empty space. And that involved, instead of trying to restore the building uh, to take away its years of dereliction, its years of abandonment, uh, instead, uh, in some curious way, to build on them, to say that in a way the most interesting part of the history of this building is not uh, the fact that it was a well-thought-of building made in the 1960s by famous architects, uh, but instead that it was this extraordinary thing, a concrete ruin uh, in the mid the rainy rhododendrons uh, of Strathclyde. And around 2012-13, we ran a number of workshops on the site, trying to get local people, uh, whether they were teenage school kids who used to go there for kind of drug-fueled raves, or people from the government, or people who used to walk their dogs in the ruins, or whoever it was, to kind of dream together, to think together about the space. And instead of to sit there and talk about it, uh, to actually go and do something uh, on the site. And I want to show you a couple of examples of the way in which we use stories and fiction to help people think their way into it. So, for example, uh, we uh, picked up on this rather wonderful Japanese technique of, of miniature figures uh, uh, and gave all these people miniature figures to inhabit the site uh, in all sorts of imaginative uh, and strange ways, to imagine new ways to open up their minds about ways in which the building might be reoccupied. We ran archaeological workshops where we invited people uh, into the site uh, to dig up uh, areas of it or to collect fragments from the building, to bag them, to label them, to take them back to the Lighthouse Scotland Centre for Architecture and Design 
uh, in Glasgow, as if they were kind of artefacts of a precious, ancient uh, and historic uh, past, uh, asking people to put something which is actually from the very recent past, from the 1960s, 70s and 80s, within a historical frame. And then we asked people to go on site and to make it safe, to start cleaning it up, to start taping it off, to start deciding where it would be a good place to be. And the medium we used to do this was giving people children's furniture, small little chairs, little tents and so on, and going, where would you be happy for an eight-year-old child to play in this asbestos-riddled, uh, smashed glass uh, ruin? Uh, and uh, the fascinating product of that, of course, is everyone goes through this process of, of, of asking themselves that question, uh, and then they decided to start going back uh, and to start clearing up the space. This was an ongoing process uh, at the time. Interestingly, uh, it uh, came to a halt in 2019, not because it was unsuccessful, but actually because there was uh, too much money thrown at it, particularly by the Heritage Lottery Fund. Um, and the project started becoming so formalised uh, that these capacities for play uh, and for fiction uh, as, as ways of dealing uh, with the difficult memories associated with this place uh, suddenly became very difficult to, con to continue. And so work at St Peter's has stopped uh, for the moment. I began this talk with the idea that buildings are some of the largest and most permanent objects that we make. And the paradoxical thought that at the same time they are always in the process of change, however slow or incremental that might appear to be. I merely want to finish on another thought, another quotation from The Tempest, which perhaps represents what an opportunity this might provide for us. Instead of trying to preserve, instead of trying to fix, instead of trying to stop time in its tracks, in our built environment, perhaps we should allow it to continue to change. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones a coral made, those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Fantastic, thanks so much. Um, so, so you said at one point in your talk, Ed, that buildings can not only trigger, but also challenge memory. Um, and I was wondering if you could give an example of a building challenging memory or, or, or tell us a little bit about how that might work. OK, I think there might be several categories uh, that in, in which the built environment might, might challenge memory. Um, the first of those being, I suppose, that buildings are things which generally exist for much, much longer than human beings, or lots of the buildings certainly in, the, in a place like Edinburgh uh, do. Um, and, and that means uh, that they are, uh, they might occupy a historical time, or as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier on before the talk, um, you know, prehistorical uh, times. And that actually buildings in that way uh, might occupy uh, spaces of forgetfulness or misremembering just as much as, as, as be vehicles for memory. Um, one of the most moving examples I came across recently um, was uh, the poem by the, the Exeter poet, an Anglo-Saxon poet who's in Bath, wandering around the ruins of Bath sometime in the 8th century in the middle of the Dark Ages. Um, and it, it's the famous passage where he's imagining that giants have built these structures. Um, and he imagines what they were built for, uh, and that there are lots of knights sitting at long tables drinking mead uh, in these great vaulted spaces. Um, of course, what he could have no idea about uh, was that they were built for kind of continentals to have spa afternoons with one another uh, so they drank glasses of wine um, because he had never experienced such a thing and it's the building in a sense that lasts longer than the memory and if the building lasts longer than the memory it challenges first of all maybe which one of those uh, is the memory 
because uh, at some point, at some later date, uh, sometime in the 17th century or the 18th century, then somebody comes along to the same structure that the Anglo-Saxon poet has been looking at uh, and digs it up and makes another speculation about it, which is that it was a bath, um, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, and so, uh, in a sense, um, it challenges an idea uh, of, or, or I suppose that that, that, that idea that, that kind of memory provides one with kind of recollection of the past versus images of the past kind of recurrian kind of thought of, uh, about it because sometimes the image can outlast kind of what the image is of if that makes any sense um, particularly with buildings as their function runs out as their the original circumstances and meaning of their construction runs out all we're left with is the form um, and the form kind of various points in that way become kind of uninterpretable um so, so simultaneously being kind of forgetful uh, and, and filled with memory at the same time that's a kind of one thought about it the the other one um one that is related particularly to the circumstances of edinburgh um and but but also kind of a lot of other kind of historicized cities, particularly cities of the early 19th century, Munich is another one, um, which are fantastic theatre sets and panoramas of the past, which were all constructed in the 1830s, 1840s, um, so that Edinburgh's old town, for example, is largely reconstructed during the 19th century to look gothic as we stare at it from a neoclassical Princess Street. The only two buildings that are allowed to bridge in between those are the two temples of art, uh, the Royal Scottish Academy and the National Gallery. Everything else is nature that separates the past uh, from the present. And it would be unfair to say this is a falsification of memory, um, though in some senses it is. Why build a an apparently medieval building in the middle of the Industrial Revolution uh, or, and so on? Um, but it might be seen and understood more as a kind of demonstration uh, of, of memory. It's a kind of didactic uh, exercise. Uh, again, in Munich, there's this fascinating street kind of um, going from the Theatine Church. I can't remember what it's called. And at the end of it is a kind of exact copy of the Loggia de Lanzi, this kind of medieval portico in Florence, which is reconstructed uh, in Munich. And then all the government buildings uh, of the early 19th century built as Renaissance Florentine palaces. Um, organized, it not being, it being German rather than Italy, but it's kind of, it's weird kind of reimagined Florence uh, that is turned to. Uh, and so in that way, architecture, particularly in the 19th century, uh, in its history, but, 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 but actually it happens in, at other times and other places as well, kind of actively seeks to dissimulate what it is uh, to dissimulate its own history uh, and its own past. In the interior, it happens in exactly the same way. Um, there was always that cruel uh, statement that people used to make about Michael Heseltine, you know, well, you can tell where he came from. He had to buy his own antique furniture. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, the idea being that if you had to, then, you know, obviously you didn't quite have enough ancient lineage to have your own antique furniture, which you'd inherited. Um, and, and interiors, uh, are places in which we dissimulate our own pasts and our own characters uh, for the consumption of, of the guests who get to see them. The most important of those guests is, of course, oneself. There's no one more convenient to lie to about one's memory than one's one's own self. Uh, but um, they're, 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 they're kind of wish fulfillment uh, exercises, uh, kind of aspirational exercises, um, uh, uh, as indeed is architecture. So I think there's two kind of ways in which uh, it might challenge memory, and perhaps I'm mixing up memory and truth here, but, but the first of those is this idea of dissimulation, theatre, uh, show, uh, historicism. Um, the second is, is I think, maybe the more fundamental one, that, that because built forms outlive the purposes and the circumstances of their making, um, then, in a sense, uh, they don't necessarily carry all memory with them, though it might be in there somewhere. Um, but but, but in, in actual fact, uh, they kind of reveal more uh, 
uh, about themselves or different things about themselves at different times. Going back to your talk, you, you described your grandmother's sitting room as a, a stage in a relay of objects, buildings and furnishings stretching over centuries. Yes. Um, and, and you said memories cling to the object. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're quite clear that these memories are appended to the objects rather than, by storytelling rather than inherent in the objects. But, uh, but I did want to ask how, in, in your view, is how important are the objects uh, and is the survival of the objects um, for the continuation of, of the relay of memory? For example, with the Parthenon, could the memories attached to the Parthenon have continued if the Parthenon had or were to cease to exist? Yeah, okay, and that, that, that's a, a very particular example. <laughs> I mean, the story that I ended up writing about the Parthenon Secret Lives of Buildings kind of speculates that the only time the Parthenon will be properly remembered is when it ceased to exist and become a kind of platonic version of itself um, because every other uh, version is somehow uh, kind of contingent. Um, in, in relationship to this idea of the kind of inherence or adherence of memory to objects, I kind of like to turn that round and, and say, well, what if one was more object-oriented and the object was the memory in the sense that, and I, th I think I say this in the passage uh, about my grandmother's living room, that kind of, you know, I have no idea who first held the glass that I'm holding in my hand. I have no idea where my grandmother's grandmother's grandmother kind of would have sat in that chair or whatever it was in the sense that, but I don't, so I don't know those things. And yet somehow they exist as pieces of knowledge somewhere, uh, probably inaccessible to me, but maybe inaccessible to a descendant of my grandchildren's grandchildren who would be able to do molecular analysis of the piece of glass or something who might be able to unlock something that's in it that's inaccessible to me. So that, that's kind of one notion there. Is, it's rather like I was saying about buildings running out of use and then being repurposed later, but they, they occupy this kind of interstitial space where it's the only thing that exists is the form of the building. Um, and in the same way that the, uh, the object might exist without any memories being without it eliciting any memories from a person. I might be holding that glass, but it elicits no memories from me other than me holding that glass because I, I, what, what anything else that might, happen to, might have happened to it is inaccessible to me. I suppose the other thing that's maybe particularly interior about this idea is to do with not objects themselves, but arrangements of objects. So what the more I thought about it, I thought what was very striking, or what my, in my own professional life, having been an architect and become an interior designer, um, what I realised is that actually the way that those two disciplines conceive of space and time is very, very different. So classically, in architecture, we think of space, for example, as being like a kind of liquid, and you pour it into containers called rooms, um, and, and it's a kind of got a shape and a form. Whereas actually, in terms of interiors, it might be more kind of constellational or relational. So it's, it's actually about how I arrange my chair in relationship to my table. And one thing that I found kind of really interesting to, to speculate and think about was that actually, in some ways, in interiors, the things which might be persistent are arrangements rather than objects. Or, or relationships between things and objects. So um, this was occasioned by, this might sound like a really dumb thing to say, but, but if you go to a, an interior design museum, usually, or a design museum, what, for example, there's the Jeffrey Museum in London, which is a great kind of historical museum of interiors. You walk around and they go, here's a room, here's a living room in the Middle Ages, and here's a living room in the 16th century, and here's a living room, and, it, and so on and so on. And in each one of those rooms, everything in that room is arranged in a particular way, in a 16th century way, a 17th century way. 
but also every object in that room is from the 16th century or the 17th century or whatever it is and you think yeah but okay i'm looking at paul on the screen and i can see that he's sitting in a 19th century room okay with a 21st century microphone in front of him and that we all do that all of the time we don't live in the present or we don't live solely in the present in terms of the objects that surround us mm. and if it was true that history was like it was presented in the design museums that we all threw out our seventh we at the beginning of the 18th century we all went hey presto it's the 18th century let's put everything in the bin that was from the 17th century then we wouldn't have anything from the past at all but obviously we do and so in actual fact, my, one of my speculations is that you could arrange a 21st century room with medieval objects, and it could only be a 21st century room. Or you could do the reverse. You could make a medieval room out of furniture from Ikea. Um, because the arrangements of things, and this comes back to this adherence and adherence to things, is kind of all the relationships between things is what stimulates or sparks those kind of uh, particular memories that might apply so it's partly to do with kind of repurposed objects because they get repurposed to different arrangements but that the arrangements somehow in themselves might stimulate uh different different triggers uh for 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 memory in people i'm afraid that's all we have time for in this the first episode of the connecting memories podcast series it remains only for me to thank uh, my guest speaker, Professor Edward Hollis. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a fantastic start to our podcast series. Thanks for the brilliant talk and for sharing your insights about memory with us. Thanks very much, Paul. It's been great to speak with you today. For more information about Connecting Memories and for news of all future episodes, please visit connectingmemories.org. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Connecting Memories podcast series. Thanks for listening. And goodbye.